0: Physics world.
1: Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I chat with a physics teacher whose students took a deep dive into optics by analyzing the iconic cover of one of the best-selling albums of the 1970s. I also look at how cosmic muons have been used to create a GPS-like positioning system that works underground, and I investigate a new study of surgical knots that could help with the development of robotic-assisted surgical tools. As classic albums go, there's probably none more classic than Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. Released in 1973, the album spent a total of 981 weeks on the Billboard 200 list of top-selling albums in the U.S. And the album's also famous for its iconic cover, which was created by the British graphic designer Storm Thorgerson, It's a very simple depiction of a beam of white light that's being split into its constituent colours by a prism. But it turns out that this illustration is very much an artistic interpretation of optical refraction, rather than what happens in real life. To chat about what the album cover gets wrong, I'm joined down the line from Dublin by the physics teacher Tom Tierney, who's used the cover as a basis for a classroom study of refraction. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, I've given a very brief description of the cover, but there really isn't much more to it um, than that, is there? It's um, essentially you look at it and you think optical refraction through a prism.
0: There really isn't any more to it than that, is there? It's... it's um... Iconic, uh, possibly because of its simplicity. It's very much the image that most people have, I think, if you talk about like going through a prism and splitting up into its colors, whether that's the influence of Pink Floyd or whether the designer was was following that, you know, an image that was already well known, I'm not actually sure. One thing about it, though, that um, depending on which version you might have bought or come across, when it was originally published, it had a gatefold design. So it opened out to give to show two prisms. Um, so the light, unlike the classic, what we think of as the front cover is white light being split up into its constituent colors. But if you open it out, there's another part that shows those colors being recombined into white light, which shows that possibly the designer had looked at the physics in a little bit more detail than, you know, just thinking it looked pretty. Because uh, that, of course, represents Newton's contribution to all of this. Uh, prisms were, from what I've read, prisms were well-known prior to Newton. They seem to have been a bit of a trinket that people could buy, you know, going back pre-any recorded of history. Um, so Newton would have known about those, and, and it seems most people knew about them. And I, I th- apparently many people, if they thought about it, believed that the, the prism was somehow changing the colors. So when he thought of then taking the light from the prism and putting it through a second one to recombine it, he established the idea that all those colors, all those waves are in there um, to begin with, or all those colors, at least from his point of view. Um, So that's like, it's a really important contribution uh, to the history of physics uh, amongst his many other contributions. And that whether it was meant to be a nod to that or not, but that is represented on the full cover.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Newton, because um, I suppose the the most iconic image of Newton, speaking of icon, <laughs> icons in physics, of course, is him watching an apple fall from a tree. But um, when I was doing a bit of research, um, uh, you know, to prepare for this interview... There's lots of, of images and drawings and representations of, of Newton sort of holding up a prism and, uh, and, and observing the light um, as it passes through. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's important to remember that Newton did uh, an incredible amount of work on, uh, on light so um, and, and of course, that's very important to your to what you teach. Um, you teach physics um, and you've used the uh, the cover of the dark side of the moon um, in the classroom. So um, just just to put this into perspective for um, for other teachers and indeed students of physics,
0: how old are, are your pupils? Hey, the students I was working with here would have been like 17 they They'd have been in the first year of two year study for Leaf Insert Physics, which is like very roughly comparable to A-level physics. Um, equivalent of our GCSEs, um, junior search we call it here, wouldn't cover refraction in any detail beyond the fact that it exists. So this would have been the first time that encountered, you know, refraction with any maths, without, with any analysis attached. Okay, so so as you said in the UK,
1: it would be roughly equivalent to um, to, to A levels. Um, you know, perhaps in North America, these would be senior high school students. So they would have a certain amount of sophistication when it came to um,
0: applying mathematics and and analyzing yeah, like physical the, problems. We'd you'd have to assume they, you know these would be kids with like adequate. Algebra skills that have done trigonometry you know they'll be they might stumble over it, but they've encountered their sines and cosines and they're you know have some degree of comfort with that sort of analysis
1: and and so how do how do you get the ball rolling um how 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 do your students begin analyzing the cover do you do you, do you sort of put it up on a screen at the at the front of the classroom and say uh Th- th- this looks like refraction, but, but maybe it isn't. Um, yeah, I think what I started doing is and-
0: it was the students that brought it up. Um, ah, okay. They were, I don't know if they mentioned Pink Floyd to begin with, but they were frustrated when we used prisms and looked at dispersion of light that it is so um, not the classic sort of cartoon version and wanted to know, you know, basically why isn't it working? Uh, and I think I... I you know, to make sure we were talking about the same thing, I, I googled that image, put it up, and and they all recognised that specific Pink Floyd of the Moon image straight away. Um, so they wanted to know why it doesn't look like that. Uh, so it it occurred to me to do what what seemed very obvious in retrospect why I didn't think of doing it before of of actually analysing that image, you know, with the maths that that they would have learned. Um so I leave the color version up on screen, but I, I print out black and white versions for them because there's a limit. There's a limit to the budget I can put into this. Um <laughs> okay. and so so are they looking are they are measuring angles
1: and um and uh, and looking at the, the index of, of refraction of glass uh, uh over the various uh wavelengths of light. Is that um is that
0: the, that, that's the approach that they it. took? Yeah, that we, we you draw in a normal line at like Perpendicular to the surface, and you measure the angle between the light ray and that line, Uh, and just divide sine of angle of incidence divided by sine of angle of refraction. I mean, it's a very simple measurement. Um, So we, and if you put light through glass or any other material, it'll change direction. But the, the like the violet blue end of the spectrum will change direction by. More than the red end, which is what creates the dispersion, and he, therefore each material and each wavelength for each material will have its own refractive index, all following the same simple calculation. So we just drew in our lines, got our protractors. And so, what what sort
1: of inconsistencies um, d- did they find? I mean, I think the big one uh, is that is it that the light bends more than is suggested by the album cover.
0: Oh, actually, or less, depending on which part of of the, the light rays you're looking at, like it really is very different. So if we take, um, just put numbers on it, I know not everyone will, will have been working on this. I'm also aware some people listen to this will know far more about it than I do. Uh, but basically, refractive index of glass usually works out to be around 1.5. So I think we started with the violet colors here. Uh, on the way into the glass and got a refractive index. I think I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was 2.42, which is really, really high. Um, but uh, the red was much less than that, like 1. Oh, 1.2, something like that. Um, and, you know, it's like it's entirely inconsistent. It was very hard to make any sense of it. The 2.42 for the violet light going in, um I then got the students like to look up, go online, figure out if that was a refractive index. What material would it be? Um, so they, you know, went through various links to find materials of a particular refractive index. We came up with a thing called zincite, um, which is zinc oxide. Apparently, it's very rare. I'd certainly never come across it, which has a refractive index close to that. Though, though somebody's pointed out to me, diamond would have been the more obvious one uh, to latch on to. Um, what gives diamond its glistening effect is a very high refractive index. But of course, they send the material they have. Looking at the violet light on the way in, you get something like diamond. The red light gives you something that's less dense with glass. If you look at the light on the way out, which should you would expect to give consistent answers, you get entirely different answers again. <laughs> okay, and it's it's totally inconsistent.
1: So you get you get an inconsistency in in the refractive index of the uh, of the various wavelengths of light um, yep. going in and then you get a different inconsistency when the light comes out and i, I i'm guessing the the reason for that is that uh, the artist um possibly completely ignored the laws of refraction and 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 made an image that looked good um more than anything
0: else he certainly didn't seem to have much respect for the laws of physics at this which Um, Because, I mean, it is a beautiful effect, even in reality. Um, One thing that fascinates me is, you know, if if you look at the image of, you know, a spectrum being created by putting light through a prism in textbooks over the years, it usually is drawn with something like the angles that the Pink Floyd cover showed, rather than the realistic angles. Um, and, And a friend of mine did a, during COVID, when when we have to amuse ourselves with such things, dug out all of his old physics textbooks, which uh, between him and his daughter, who's an engineer, went back, you know, 50 years, they had loads of books and they had one or two copies going back a century. And one thing that jumped out at him is how consistent images are in physics textbooks going right back into the 1800s when they had images. Um, and I, I think one reason for that is that The textbooks copy each other. It's like, you know, I need an image for a dispersion of white light going through a prism. Will you draw me one that looks like, you know, book X or book Y or book Z? Um, So that image seems ubiquitous or something similar to the Pink Floyd image is ubiquitous. So whether he was copying the textbooks, whether the textbooks to some extent have copied him since, I'm really not sure. But it's certainly not based on on any real physics.
1: Oh uh, that's really interesting. Uh that so 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 Thorgerson is is perhaps not guilty of well what why should he be guilty of making his picture look nice because that's his job. He was possibly just copying previous mistakes and I I'm guessing I mean c- c- can we call them mistakes because if you look at what actually happens when light passes through a prism it's not um it's not as obvious what's going on as in thorgerson's illustration is it um i mean i suppose if you want to sort of understand what what's happening in a qualitative way the the dark side of the moon cover is something maybe that you should be looking at because um the what happens in reality is maybe a bit more difficult
0: to to see and and to interpret Like, it really can be if you, you know, if you set this up, try to set it up in a school lab, you know, it can be very hard to see the effect is there at all. You know, if if you can create a dark room and, you know, get out your photographic equipment and really, you know, dedicate hours to it, you can create some beautiful effects, but they're not immediately obvious. So, yeah, I I don't think it's a fault of textbooks or um, graphic designers to exaggerate effects to explain what's going on, to allow people to it's like. this is the sort of thing you're looking for. And then as long as I suppose that we do our job in the classroom and then let them see what the reality can be like and how it can be more subtle and more complicated in ways than the than the drawing version.
1: And Tom, you, you've written an article about this um, for Physics World describing what, what you and your students... Have been up to, and um, I'll 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 give uh, I'll give a link at the end of the interview. But if if you look at that um, at that article, there is actually a a, a picture of uh, of the real thing of light going through a prism, and um, it, it it is interesting to see that uh, you know as you say it's it, it it is difficult to see what's going on in the real situation, whereas the the dark side of the moon. Image makes it, it it much clearer, doesn't it?
0: Oh yeah, um, and of course another thing that it brings up, you know, between drawings of this and the to rainbows too, um, is is what colours are there? Because um, the, the 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 dark side of the moon image shows six colours coming through the the well glass or whatever material it might be, and of course newton identified seven and that has become the accepted norm but you know ask anyone to sort of no matter how well the setup is to actually point to the clear boundaries between seven different colors and like well, they won't struggle to do so they'll fail to do so like it really isn't that straightforward um so i mean i don't have a problem again with The simplifications of drawing and identifying, I mean, if Newton has done it, I can hardly complain of of naming the seven colors, but it's important that students then look at the reality as well and sort of have in their understanding a mix of the, you know, the neatness of the theory and the image mixed in with the reality that's in front of them. Actually, just just for this, uh, I Googled up on it and apparently Boyle, prior to Newton, had identified five colors uh Newton may well have identified seven because he he was you know keen on the number seven that it had i don't know spiritual significance the right the right word for him, but sort of in that numerology sort of way um so it you know the <clears throat> on all of those whether it's the angles the reality of what it looks like the the labeling of the colors. I have no problem with drawings simplifying it.
1: Mm. Oh, and then that's it can interesting. be interesting
0: to, to see the reality and let students see the reality.
1: Yeah, because I, I suppose, you know, Thorgerson could have chosen the colors for, for aesthetic reasons. and and But it also could be, um, you know, for purely practical reasons that um, when, when, when the cover was printed, um, you know, perhaps it was not possible to print certain colors or certain colors wouldn't look good. Um, being printed on an album cover, so uh, I suppose there's a, uh, lots of different reasons as that to is... why he chose the uh, the colors that he did. But yeah, it is you know it is a it is a fantastic cover, and you know it's great that it's really inspired people to think about physics. And I mean, it sounds like your students really enjoyed applying physics to uh, you know to this image and analyzing the image. Um, are there any other ways that that you uh, inspire your students to learn in a similar way, you know, sort of using things from popular culture?
0: Um, in the last about year, year and a half, I've been dipping into science fiction, sort of a building on this idea. Um, it occurred to me like in, in analyzing the, the Pink Floyd image that you no know, clearly it's not a real thing but they were learning real physics by looking at it and going online and trying to compare it to other materials and other sources uh, in a way that the you know the very contrived pseudo real scenarios that we see in textbook questions and and exams might match realities more in ways but the interaction that the student has with them can be very limited um so i came across a book a guy in carnegie mellon uh university is it pittsburgh america um has put together an undergraduate college physics program in which he takes all of his examples from science fiction so it's all based on he's very fond of star trek uh star wars the martian uh ancient like uh, 1902 there was journey to the moon the first science fiction movie one of the first movies um and he uses those to get students to sort of basically like is that plausible even superficially plausible and i have found it you know i don't know if i'm entertaining myself or entertaining the students or educating them but you know it's something hopefully that that is a little bit of all of those we've looked at uh, James Bond cutting through the steel floor of a train that he is trapped in, that is <laughs> hurtling towards some inevitable disaster. And he's um, cutting through it with a laser inside his watch.
1: <laughs> um, we
0: just Is that plausible? And students, to figure it out, have to look at how lasers can cut material, which is, is melting rather than traditional cutting. They have to learn that. They tie it in then with latent heat-specific heat capacities. The idea of modeling, they have to come up with what sort of... Shape is being cut. You know, there's a lot of real physics there yeah, yeah. in bodies. clearly an situation. Even g-
1: could you store that amount of energy in your watch um, using a lithium-ion actually, battery? <laughs> I'm guessing that's probably that, the killer. That's the bit that, that we analysis. come down to
0: in the end. Because yeah. you know, that's totally plausible. If you can get a big enough laser in there, it's certainly going to work. <laughs> um, but having that stored in a watch, and particularly a watch from, I think, 1990-something, it was Pierce Brosnan ah, right, anyway. Uh, I think it's mm-hmm. unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, and also even less plausible, but more fun. Uh, Spider-Man stopping stopping a runaway train with his webs attached to a wall. Mm. The walls of the nearby skyscrapers, which mm. uh, is sort of working as springs. So it's an example of Hooke's Law. Um, equations of motion, Newton, Hooke, all interconnected there. You have to draw the lines, though. If that is that plausible? You know, you have to say, okay... If you could be a superhero who could create webs, would it then be plausible to use those webs to stop a train? Mm. Um, certainly, I don't know. I've seen students get really get really into it, uh, which I think can't be a bad thing. And if they're entertained, if I'm entertained, and if at the end of the day we have some small deepening of understanding of the laws, seems to me it's probably a good day's work.
1: Mm. I mean, I, I suppose it's it's a benefit too, in in terms of learning how science works, because um, if you're if you're presented with a, a perfect example of a phenomenon, well, okay, you, you I suppose you learn about that phenomenon. But if you're if you're presented with an imperfect example, you know, for example, the uh, the the album cover, that's that that's probably a bit closer to what you would get if you're working in a physics lab. You know the, the data that you would get from your from your um, apparatus would you know it would be colored by various different things, and you would have to sort out the problem. You know, what, why are my results not looking like I expected them to uh, to look like? And I think that could be a very um, a very useful skill for somebody going into physics to have. Um, you know, to analyze uh, an image um using physics and be able to say well something's not quite right here you know we need to to do some further experimentation or
0: or further investigation you know these are exactly my my thoughts in a funny way though an entirely unrealistic thing the physics can be more real or it can be more meaningful to the students like one thing that we get, and, and I've written these. I'm not trying to knock them, but but in in sort of the the grammar that we expect in exam questions and textbook questions, not only do we present them usually by perfect scenarios, but with no extraneous information. You know, every number offered will fit into a formula somewhere, which of course is so unrealistic. Like in any real scenario where you're figuring things out, you have to. F- you know, there there can be loads of information there that you have to ignore or, or work your way around or see, you know, it might be relevant, but with limitations on its practicalities. Um yeah, I I say as I say, it's funny how sometimes you can get more real from less realistic situations.
1: Mm. And and one thing that that um I I was really fascinated by when I when I read your article and, and also speaking to you about the motivation for doing this is that um, that you, 17 year olds are, are familiar with <laughs> the, the dark side of the moon, which I think came out 50 years ago. And I think I think you say in your article that um, most young people couldn't name a track on the album, but um, that they were somehow familiar with it and and the image. Why do you think that's the case Do you think that that's a testament to um Thorgerson's design or or maybe a, a, an interest in physics that that your students have and they when they see that image they they think, oh yeah, that's physics uh, um, i'll uh, you know I'll, I'll ask Mr. Tierney about that on Monday morning
0: it, um it's It's surely a little bit of all of those things. Um, what, what parts of popular culture have survived through the generations? It's fascinating the stuff that kids do know about and then don't know about. When you remember these things yourself uh, mm. from being a kid, um, there, there's a website from Colorado FET. It's widely used in schools and education where they, you know, create animations for various things. And for one of their animations, they have a dancing. Uh, John Travolta. It's got something to do with static electricity. I can't remember why it has to be John Travolta. Um, but kids always know who he is. You know, and it's been a long time, even now since his renaissance in the uh, Pulp Fiction era. They always know who he is. They all mm. know about Greece. I don't know why. I don't know why that's survived particularly. <laughs> but the Pink Floyd one, they, you know, in every group I brought it up, several of the kids immediately recognize it and can name the album, name the band, which is... Because it's the album and the band aren't named on the cover anywhere. Oh, that's Um, true, yeah. So they they both recognize it and can identify it. Um, And I suppose there's something about a classic image that, that there's a reason why it strikes people. So, I mean, are they responding to the physics, to its beauty? Maybe a little bit of both of those. I'm sure Newton you know, was was drawn to the beauty of of the the colours coming through it at the beginning and the physics and beauty weren't they're not separate things. There may be there there's certainly an overlap in those Venn diagrams. And I guess the kids come to us in the overlap.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's certainly the case that, um, you know, I think probably universally we, we find rainbows beautiful. <laughs> I've never met a person who doesn't like a, a good rainbow. So, um, yeah, I suppose, you know, the beauty of nature really is, um, is, is definitely in there. Um, you, you can find Tom's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Great Gaff in the Sky the erroneous physics behind the dark side of the moon. And Tom, you've also reviewed a book for Physics World. It's called Wasteland, the dirty truth about what we throw away, where it goes and why it matters. And that book is by Oliver Franklin Wallace. D- did you enjoy the book, Tom?
0: Oh, I, I, this is a really good book. Um, really interesting, really intriguing, uh, engrossing reading, um, it's, you know, in reading about politics and, and nature and, and, uh, environmentalism, you can have a curious feeling of simultaneously really enjoying a book that's well put together, well being, you know, utterly depressed and dismayed by what you're learning from it. It was that sort of pleasure in reading it. Um, it's, it's a really good book. No, no, I shouldn't. though no, it is a lot of what you learn there is grim. It doesn't, it didn't leave me with an entirely, uh, it didn't entirely leave me with a sense of hopelessness. There is mm. there is some hope, uh, but what we're doing right now from what I learned in there, and that I sort of knew, but maybe hadn't chosen to, to know the details of, it's pretty grim.
1: Oh, well, well, I mean, I suppose the, the, the title says it all, doesn't it? Um, so, but yeah, you can read uh, Tom's review. It's, it's on the Physics World website at the moment. Um, uh, so have a look at it and also check out uh, Tom's article, um, Great Gaff in the Sky. Thanks for being on the podcast, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. The Earth is constantly bombarded by subatomic particles called muons, which are created when cosmic rays interact with the atmosphere. These muons are charged particles, essentially heavy electrons, which can travel through materials such as concrete before being detected. Scientists have taken advantage of this by doing radiography using muons, imaging the interiors of large objects such as an Egyptian pyramid and a decommissioned nuclear reactor. Now, researchers in Japan have used cosmic muons to create a navigation system that can operate in places where systems like GPS cannot. This includes deep in the basement of a large building. Their system comprises a number of reference muon detectors that were installed on the roof of a large university building in Tokyo. A portable receiver is deployed in the basement of the building, and the system looks for muons that have passed through one of the reference detectors and the receiver. Because the muons travel at close to the speed of light, the time difference between the detections gives the distance between the reference detector and the receiver. Using similar measurements involving other reference detectors, the location of the receiver can be triangulated. The current system uses quartz oscillators to do the timing, and it can locate the receiver to within a few meters under ideal conditions. This is on par with the performance of GPS on a smartphone, but the team says that this spatial resolution could be improved. You can read more about this novel navigation system on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Positioning System Uses Cosmic Muons to Navigate Underground. Have you ever tied a knot only for it to come undone? It might be the type of knot that you've used successfully many times before, so the failure might be a bit puzzling and a bit annoying. For surgeons, however, tying good knots is a crucial part of the job. Now, researchers in Switzerland have shed light on why some surgical knots hold and some don't. The key to success, according to the study, is the pretension of the filament, the stretching of the filament as the knot is being tied. Their study found a power law relationship between pretension and knot strength. As well as helping surgeons tie better knots, the research could help in the development of robotic-assisted surgical tools. You can find out more on the Physics World website under the headline, Untangling the Mechanisms Behind Surgical Knot Strength. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Tom Tierney for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast which looks at some of the new technologies that could soon be used to create even more powerful computers. Host Andrew Glester is joined by three experts who look at how new paradigms such as optical and quantum-based computing could play key roles in the future of calculations. That podcast is called Moore's Law in Peril and the Future of Computing. And you can find it and all the episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider.
0: Physics World.